What is up, y'all? Kevin Kuhn here from Athlete Factors. This is the Athlete Factors podcast. My guest today is Dr. Kate Harrison. How you doing today? I'm great, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. So um, you work for BOA Technology. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what you do there, and then we'll we'll get into the fun stuff. Yeah, so I guess starting uh, quite a ways back, um, I was always super into sports as a kid and ultimately um, was best at running, and that was my primary interest. And so going into uh, university education, um, was going to run at West Virginia University and was just obsessed with with running and, and science and so chose to study exercise physiology and have kind of been on that road ever since. Um, I ultimately did a, a master's there in exercise physiology and then uh, my PhD in rehabilitation and movement science at Virginia Commonwealth University, uh, focusing on running biomechanics and injury and performance. Uh, and currently I'm at BOA Technology, uh, working on uh, footwear development and how that relates to uh, athlete performance. Very cool. So um, it's kind of a funny story how, uh, you know, the, the world is a very small place. It's a very big place, but it's a tiny place at the same time. So um, two of your former teammates were camp counselors at an Athletes in Action <clears throat> Tough Camp, which is a high school running camp, and I was a counselor there too. So um yeah, so I know Anna Lewis and uh, Stephanie Caruso pretty well, and it's just crazy that um, the world's tiny. <laughs> yeah, definitely is a small world, so super cool to kind of get in touch. Um, yeah. yeah. There's also the layer of, um, for a while, I wanted to do my PhD with Dr. Greg Hoff, and he yeah. was your professor, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was my undergrad advisor and could definitely see why you'd want to study with him. He did lots of great work on strength and conditioning that, that definitely kind of piqued my interest uh, and got me to delve further into the field, for sure. Yeah, he was like my first exposure to the idea of periodization for your diet. And I was like, what in the world is this? This is a thing? So uh, I was... I nerded out big time at a uh, at an ISSN nutrition conference one time where he was speaking, and I was like, "Oh my goodness, I I got to learn more from this guy." So that's good stuff. So um, you've mentioned, you know, your your background in running. You've uh, you ran, you know, collegiately at West Virginia, but you've also been able to represent your home country of Canada a few times. So tell us a little bit about, you know, your, your athletic background specifically with running and kind of what your ideal distances are and what your training was like and all of that. For sure. Um, so I have been a distance runner, so definitely focused on, you know, cross country through high school and then in college ended up uh, kind of really finding my groove in the 5k and 10k um, running at West Virginia, um, with Sean Cleary, he's a Canadian coach there and there's a pretty, uh, large Canadian contingent of athletes there. And so it's always really supportive of, um, opportunities to represent Canada and making that a goal. Um, so I did, uh, get to represent Canada, um, at the world cross country championships uh, a couple of times and, um, just had a, you know, a real distance runner kind of uh, strength and background. And so um, even now I'm still training, um, has not been a lot of racing, obviously, over the past year, year and a half, but hopefully we'll try my hand at the marathon going forwards. And so it continues to kind of be a big part of my life. That's awesome. That's so cool. Um, so what is what is the change been like? from 5k 10k training to marathon training yeah um pretty not a massive change i would say uh the background i came um up through west virginia with was definitely a strength as in strength endurance uh 
when runners refer to strength, I guess we're referring to the <laughs> long tempo, not the uh, strength of the not, strength and conditioning world. <laughs> not running around in the weight room. That's not strength. Yes, runners. definitely need to translate that. But so very long, lots of long tempo type training. Um, so definitely building up the long run a little bit has been a focus. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe from like the 16 to 17 mile range, trying to get um, up more in the 20 range, uh, definitely. And um push a little past that once we finally get into a really focused marathon training block. That's awesome. Very cool. Well, best of luck. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll, we're, I'm going to stay tuned to see how, how all that goes, but I'm excited about that. So, uh, if you will tell us a little bit more about, um, what you were studying, what you were studying specifically in grad school, like both your master's and your PhD, and how that's translated to what you're doing now. Yeah, uh, so starting with my master's, there was definitely kind of a shift uh, from master's to PhD. Um, but as I said, I studied exercise physiology, so I had a kind of a broader background, ranging from physiology to biomechanics. Um, and so right as I was making the transition from undergrad to master's, it was right around the time that barefoot running was very big in the uh, in not only the research world, but definitely making its way into more kind of Runner's World magazine and more mainstream type of um, outlets. And so for better, for worse, uh, that was definitely very effective in kind of grabbing my attention and starting to um, make me wonder about how footwear and biomechanics would relate to athlete performance. It wasn't something I really knew a lot about. And so I ultimately studied with um, Dr. Jean McCrory at West Virginia University, and uh, her focus was in biomechanics. And actually, um, her specific interest was in the biomechanics of pregnancy. So Mm. got into um, considering uh, female biomechanics um, and function and how that was related to pregnancy and also got to work on some side projects looking at uh, foot anthropometry and barefoot running. Um, and I think from that, knew I uh, had a goal to work in industry um, just because I knew that that would give me an opportunity to really focus on athlete performance throughout my career. Um, and so when I transitioned into my PhD program um, at Virginia Commonwealth University, I was working with Blaze Williams and studying running biomechanics um, and how that related to injury primarily, actually. Um, It was a kind of more clinically focused program in a physical therapy department. And so my specific project was looking at novice runners uh, who we know are tend to be at a bit of a higher risk for injury and trying to understand why that might be and how we can start to uh, prevent that. Awesome. So that brings us to the topic essentially for today's podcast, which is like, what the heck is good running form? And are there differences between novice and experienced runners and, and all that? So if you could condense running form into a bit of a primer, like is, so is there a standard? Like, is there, you know, like, okay, so I watch a lot of track and field on TV And, like, some people just look beautiful when they run. And then there's some runners who can run just as fast. And it's, like, they look like they're hurting. Like, it does not look comfortable at all. But, like, whatever. They get it done. So is there there an ideal running form that people should work towards? And, um, you know, is is there this standard? Or is it kind of eh, as long as you can put one foot in front of the other, it's like it's all good? Yeah, you know, I think it's maybe funny to say as a biomechanist that I wouldn't say maybe there's there's an ideal running form. And I would hesitate to try and push an ideal running form. I think that can be a bit alienating and just running should be a simple sport. And I don't want, would never want people to think I'm doing it wrong or worry about you know, trying to attain something based on, Mm -hmm. you know, how a pro runner looks on TV. Um, And I think there's some really strong evidence to back that up. Um, So a good example would be, let's say, stride frequency. And there's a a lot of talk about, you know, how many steps per minute should I take and what's the optimal cadence. 
Um, but a few studies now have actually shown that runners are really good. It's they're self-selecting their natural cadence, um, mm-hmm. right at about what's optimal for their running economy and performance. Um, another kind of hot button issue in biomechanics is has been forefoot and rear foot striking, and mm-hmm. quite similarly, um, actually Alison Gruber and Joe Hamill have published a nice paper for anyone interested, but really summarizing and delving into all the literature available on that have uh, came to the conclusion that there is no benefit in terms of performance or injury in forefoot hmm. versus rear foot striking. And so it seems that whatever people are doing now, whatever they're naturally doing, um, seems to work pretty well for them. Um, that's I'm going to pause you there because that's a very interesting uh, like idea, right? So for the longest time, uh, the the... I don't know if you'd call it the general consensus, but uh, there's been like a decent amount of agreement that like, hey, heel striking is that's a breaking force, right? So now you're you're unable to absorb these ground reaction forces through soft tissue. Now most of that's going to be absorbed through through bone and joint, and that's probably not good. That's going to you know lead to stress fractures or or just a different subset of overuse injuries versus soft tissue injuries. So, um, is that, do we know if that's related to where you're making contact relative to your center of gravity or your center of mass? Like if you're landing, if your heel striking way out in front of you, like, is that the same as making a flat foot contact or heel strike like right underneath you like are there differences between those two things right uh certainly there are differences and i think you actually um made a good point there in that it might subject you to a different subset of injuries or forces and so i think um deciding that one is better or worse is probably impossible and that um Mm -hmm. it might just be that if you happen to be a forefoot striker um you might subject, you know, your Achilles to more load and your your uh, lower leg muscles, and so you might be more prone to those types of injuries. Whereas, to your point, uh, maybe if you are a pretty extreme heel striker, um, you might be more prone to things like stress fractures or or knee pain. Um, I think the other important note there is we often maybe classify it as a binary thing, um, forefoot versus rear foot striker, but there's certainly a whole spectrum. And it might be more mm-hmm. useful to think of it that way in that if you are an extreme uh, heel striker and kind of landing way out in front of you on your heel and slamming into the ground, maybe that's something that could be addressed if it's really um, exaggerated. Um, and similarly, if you're way up on your toes and kind of prancing and your heel never hits the ground, maybe that's something that equally would need to uh, be addressed if it caused issues. Yeah, that there was a guy on my... Uh, on my cross-country and track team in college who, like, was always in the training room before and after practice getting his uh, calves massaged and, like, getting all this soft tissue work done on his calves. His heels never touched the ground, and he was a marathon runner. Oh, and we're wow. all like, dude, maybe yeah. there might be some changes you could make here, but, like, that was just that was the way he ran. And it's, it's just one of those interesting, you know, observations. Uh, Shalea Kip, when I had her on the podcast, she talked about how, like, she's a pretty heavy heel striker. And that was important when it came to the steeplechase because uh, every single person, uh, at least with the water jump, but I think it might be even every barrier the your first foot contact after a barrier everybody touches their heels down so even if you're a midfoot striker or a forefoot striker like when you land after a barrier your heels are going to touch and so if you're doing a ton of volume especially with a water jump and you're a forefoot striker you probably are going to have some serious heel pain you're going to have some issues so if you're and if you're naturally a heel striker and then you go into doing practice water jumps and stuff like that, you're probably going to be a little more acclimated to those 
uh, levels of ground reaction force, which in their study, I think were like seven times body weight. Like yeah, there's some serious crazy. level ground, ground reaction force there. So if you're, if you're not accustomed to that and then boom, you start doing jumps, like eh, maybe you're going to have to not do a whole lot of jumps right away. Like you're going to have to ease into it. So I, I, that just reminded me of, of, you know, that thing that, that she had brought up. And I, that's so interesting because I was like, what? She's super elite. Like, she's so elite. She ran yeah. in the Olympics. She's a heel striker. What? No. Like, my my whole notion of, no, there is a running standard. Everybody should run this way. Like, no. Nah. My mind was getting blown. So, And I kind of knew that because – there's again, there's just some people who run so fast who have very little injury history and they don't look athletic when they're running. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. For the sure, body right? finds a way to do it. It's, and it's incredible. comforting too, right? Just to think, oh no, I don't have to try and go through all these complex changes. Um, just one one layer of complexity we can hopefully for the most part strip away. Um, and uh, just do your thing. For sure. So, so there's no quote unquote good form, but are there, are there things that everyone should probably be mindful of or try to be aware of when it comes to, uh, minimizing risk or maximizing performance? Yeah. So I think there is one thing, um, that seems to come up, uh, pretty regularly in running literature, and that would be um, less so focused on the sagittal plane um, or like kind of the straightforward and backward movements and um, get into a little bit more of the nuanced movements of the side-to-side the -side and rotational movements that your, your joints undergo with every step. Um, and some of that is absolutely necessary. Um, you know, it, it helps your body kind of to absorb, absorb impact with every step. Um, but particularly at the knee, if we get excessive collapse, if we look at the body of work that's been done um, in running, looking at some of the uh, hip collapse and hip adduction, and then even borrowing from, you know, court and field sports showing higher risk of knee injury uh, with a knee valgus or knee abduction, uh, whatever term you want to use for it, um, being uh, pretty consistently and strongly linked to knee injury. I think that might be something that... Uh, all athletes, whether you're a runner with, you know, when you're running, every step is a, is a single leg landing. And so I think we can take a lot from basketball and volleyball um, and maybe want to focus a little bit on learning to control with each landing, just that we're not um, completely collapsing uh, in that, you know, the frontal and transverse planes. Um, all that's to say we don't have, we know that maybe too much is bad, but the line for how much is too much is still really not clear. So we can't look at run runner and say, oh, you collapsed too much and you collapsed just the right amount. Um, mm -hmm. But I would certainly say if, let's say, you do tend to have knee injuries, um, that would be a sign that that might be something that you want to consider and maybe work with a physical therapist on. Or a kinesiologist like myself. Yes. <laughs> because, uh, like, in my practice, that's that's what I do a lot of is is – measuring single leg squats and looking at um, joint angles passively. And there's times where just watching somebody run, you might not, you might not see anything, but then watching them do a single leg squat where there's excessive knee valgus, I'm like, hmm, okay, so I just watched them jog, but it was only, you know, 50 yards, right? Like, when they're three or four or 10 miles in or 15 miles into a long run, like, I'm sure there's some change in mechanics and maybe that's where the knee pain starts to show up. So, um, but yeah, that's, that's one of those things. How much is too much? Like, mm, I, that's a tough one. I know when I see a lot of it and the athlete has pain, I know if we fix it, that that pain's going to go away. But I can't be like, uh, we're we're at you know at this level, and if we go to this level, that's where things are going to be really bad. Like I have no idea. For so, sure. um, 
So that's kind of the uh, – let's transition from there to differences between, say, men and women. Yeah. Um, so I think that is that is a really interesting question, and I think a question that hasn't maybe gotten as much attention as it deserves in literature, but definitely starting to come to the forefront is something that's really important. Um, you know, I think before we even get into the differences, there are certainly more similarities than differences where, you know, mm-hmm. men and women, everyone's putting one foot in front of the other. Um, and so given that, you know, basic task of running is moving forwards in the sagittal plane, we don't really see too many differences. They're pretty similar. Um, but when you talk about those frontal plane differences, um, you know, many, many researchers have now noted that women do tend to display a, a larger range of motion in the frontal plane, um, at the knee and the hip uh, in particular. And so for, for the lay person, that's just like sagittal plane, like when you're looking at somebody running from in front or behind, like men and women basically, no difference. But when you're looking at them from a side view, that's where we're starting to notice some changes. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. exactly. Um, and the reason for those changes aren't entirely clear, um, at least not yet. And it's been pretty widely hypothesized that you know women have a different skeletal structure and maybe wider hips um, contribute to that. And a few authors have looked into that and found you know, that explains maybe a small fraction of the difference between men and women. Uh, mm. So it could just be, you know, potential differences in, in tendon and, and ligament laxity, for example, um, or stiffness. So we don't really ex- entirely know why, uh, but we do know that men and women do have these kind of general uh, differences. And that plays into the fact that we, they also tend to report um, a little bit of variation in the types of injury. So overall, if you look at uh, male and female runners, they tend to report similar overall rates of injury. But if you look at, break it down by injury type, um, men maybe are more prone to things like Achilles tendonitis or patellar tendonitis. And women Mm -hmm. tend to report more uh, patellofemoral pain syndrome and ITVN syndrome. And so I think when we start to see those discrepancies in injury, it becomes really important to understand why are they seeing differences in their injury uh, types and how can we kind of address those two groups um, to better address their their injury profiles. Gotcha. So some of it is structural structural differences like uh, maybe Q angle, maybe um, like you said, joint laxity. Um, but I, like I'm surprised that it's a fraction maybe of of accounting for injury like that's crazy to me that blows my mind yeah yeah for sure i think it's it's still something we're working on and um so no no perfect answers yet but i think hopefully some more some more answers are forthcoming in the next decade or so awesome well that's good like that's if we don't know and we aren't studying it then like we're we're leaving a ton of not only performance on the table, but like we're just leaving ourselves open to to injuries that don't have to happen. These are not contact like contact sport injuries. These are almost all of them are overuse injuries. So, um, you know, we can prevent those if we know what to look for and if we know how to address them. But if we're not paying attention because we're like, oh, all runners are the same, then come yeah. on, yeah, we got to sure be you. better than that. <laughs> Absolutely, I agree. So we know there's some variation in general between the may, the way that men and women run. So what are some of the differences between a novice runner and a more experienced runner? Yeah, so that was a question I took a pretty deep dive into during my uh, dissertation work. And so I started with a project taking a group of people who had never run regularly um, and compared them uh, and these were all females, and compared them to a group of women who had been running, um, you know, at least three days a week for over a year. Um, and looking back into research that was done before, um, 
there have been a couple of studies that hadn't found any differences, let's say, in the, the peak um, hip angle uh, during the stance phase. So when your foot's in contact with the ground, your hip's going to collapse a little bit towards the, the midline of the body in the frontal plane. And they didn't see any differences in the, the um, maximum value of that angle uh, between novice and experienced runners or any relationship between the number of years you had run, let's say, and, and some of those um, primary variables. Um, but some other authors like um, Christian Claremont in Calgary and, and Catherine Boyer um, from UMass had done some work looking at high versus low mileage runners. So maybe this isn't necessarily exactly novice versus experienced, but high mileage runners have um, typically spent years building up to that volume and every week obviously kind of accumulate more miles than someone running um, half as much. And so we can uh, pretty distinctively say that a high mileage runner is more experienced in terms of total running volume than a low mileage runner. And mm -hmm. in comparing those two groups, um, there are some differences that again seem to surface primarily in the frontal and the transverse plane. Um, and so that could be just that over a long-term adaptation that experienced runners tend to find a way to run that puts them maybe at a lower risk of injury. Um, all runners get hurt pretty frequently, so it's definitely not a silver bullet, uh, but it might kind of mitigate their risk somewhat in kind of um, those frontal and transverse plane differences. Yeah, that's that's a that's something that I think about every once in a while is um, your body's going to adapt to make you more efficient, but uh, particularly when it comes to endurance athletics, I'm not entirely convinced that becoming more efficient also makes you more resilient to injury. Like, um, does that make sense? Am I, am I like, yeah. do I sound crazy? No, I think that is an interesting question. Like, is it, is it a trade-off between injury and performance or are they, do they both come together? Um, you know, I think there's a good, maybe theoretically in my mind, you'd think if you're, um, got a lot of motion in the, in the frontal plane, that's probably not the most useful motion if your point is, if your goal is to move forwards as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a good theoretical argument there that maybe if you control your, your frontal plane motions a little bit better, that could make you more efficient. And I think there is um, not a ton of evidence or research into that, but uh, one study at least showing that more efficient runners do tend to have less, less range of motion in the frontal plane. Um, I think the other aspect to that question is there's so much that goes into running efficiency aside from your biomechanics, you know, how like your tissue properties, for example, and your, your physiology. So um, it's, it's definitely hard to really fully understand the relationship between those two. Yeah. So when I see someone who's run every day for 50 years, you know, like somebody who's in their 60s or 70s and they've just, they are a runner. And all they do is every day they're, they're checking the box, I ran, right? So they should be as efficient as running, efficient at running as like humanly possible, right? Like in theory, right? Because if like that's the activity and that's what they're doing every day. And many times their their hip mobility is is not great <laughs> yep. in any in any plane of motion. And <laughs> like they they're here's where that idea that I was uh, explaining earlier of like becoming efficient at a movement doesn't necessarily mean uh, you're resilient, right? Because if all they've done is run, then their body is like, okay, we don't need this extra range of motion when it comes to hip flexion and extension. We're not getting there while we run. Let's let's lock those hip flexors down. Let's lock the glutes down a little bit. Like, let's just limit all that. Let's keep us right here in this tiny range because that's that's all we're moving in. Um, so that's one of those things that 
like that's the body doing its job like that's what uh, that's what our body's designed to do it's like the nervous system and the rest of our bodies like we've got to survive we've got to be as efficient with these calories as possible whatever we're getting in how do we budget this how do we limit you know how much we're expending what if there's a famine tomorrow um what are we doing here? Like, let's lock it down. So I think that's one of those interesting things when it comes to to running specifically that I think is very different from, you know, many other sports. Because um, you're, you're taking that into account. But then um, what most people don't think about, like you said, is the mechanics of what's going on in that frontal plane and transverse plane. Like, you know, the knee is a hinge joint in general, but the tibia rotates, right? There's there's movement there. The the arch absorbs absorbs force, but your foot pronates and supinates. Like there's and there's inversion and eversion. Like the hip, the femur rotates, right? Like there's all these this is three-dimensional stuff there's no such thing as just front side backside mechanics anymore like we can't we can't afford to look at things that way so um yeah i don't i don't i think i just went off on a little bit of a rabbit trail there but like it's so crazy that um more people i i don't think in are spending enough time learning about this stuff and because it's complex like as soon as you add in frontal plane like now okay you've just multiplied what form is supposed to be by a ton more variables and then you add in the transverse plane it's like ugh, are you kidding me like this there's infinite amounts of data that you have to consider now um okay. yeah and we're just talking about the stance phase like there's yeah. a whole bunch of other stuff going on but that's like that's where the the force is taking place right like the absorption and then the application of new force or recycling of force so yeah no i i totally agree it's, it's a fascinating question and i think one of my um also kind of passion projects that came up through this project was looking at the coordination of the ankle and the hip and in the frontal and transverse planes as you mentioned um the knee is a hinge joint you don't have you know your your quadriceps and hamstrings that are big muscles moving your your knee in the in the sagittal plane so flexing and extending your knee um, and yet there's all this complexity of motion at your ankle and your hip and how those two joints kind of coordinate and work together in positioning the knee like you said in in rotation and in the frontal plane um, I think is really interesting and not something we fully understand yet yeah it's as soon as I kind of started to learn that, you know, the way that we view muscles based off an anatomy textbook is not the way that things look or work in real life. Like, you know, rectus femoris. This is a hip flexor and it's, it's a knee extensor. And then, you know, you've got the other muscles of the quad. You've got vastus medialis. You've got vastus lateralis. And it's like, yeah, okay, well, like, you know, I'm looking at it in a textbook and I can understand like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Just the quad muscles extend the knee. Yeah. But like, there's a ton of wraparound like that vastus lateralis is overlapping a ton with, with, you know, it band and with, um, the, the fascial connections of the TFL and the fascial connections of the glute fibers. And so, um, cause that's all going into the it band as well. So like, there's a lot of, of play there uh, like we don't just go forwards and backwards and side to side and diagonal like we're doing like all of that sometimes at the same time so it's complex stuff yeah. <laughs> but it's worth learning about it's worth studying so thank you <laughs> so Let's talk a little bit more about the specific differences between uh, novice runners and experienced runners, at least in uh, female runners. Yeah. Um, so when I uh, compared the novice runners to experienced runners, we did see um, that 
looking during the stance phase that the novice runners had a higher degree of knee abduction or knee valgus. So their, their knee was collapsing in uh, more so than the experienced runners. Um, so presumably from, you know, what we know about knee injuries and the link to biomechanics, that's probably not an ideal movement pattern. Um, and so that uh, might help to explain why why novice runners tend to experience more injury in a mile per week. That might be, you know, uh, a fraction of their total weekly mileage. And so the relative increase is pretty small, but when the novice runner goes and runs a mile or two during their first week, that's a pretty huge increase in load for their body. And um, so that certainly would put them potentially at a higher risk. Uh, but these movement patterns could also uh, play a role. And so understanding um, what those movement patterns are and how long does it take to change? Do they change within a runner as they train? Um, do we need to be prescribing kind of more specific instructions or drills or anything? Um, is really kind of wanted uh, wanted to get at uh, with that project. Gotcha. So, what what were your conclusions on on that part? Like, are there things that you recommend novice runners do so that they end up looking more like experienced runners? Yeah. Um, so I think um, there's a few different ways uh, to approach this problem and. From a research standpoint, we don't uh, fully have those answers. Um, hopefully, I'll be working on a paper looking at first just the question of presumably with time, um, you know, just following a good training program and being really consistent, let's say with a couch to 5K program. Um, if, if a novice runner is patient and builds up slowly, um, hopefully those adaptations would occur. Um, mm -hmm. At what point? You know, does it take three months, six months? Does it take three years? We don't really know, but I think a, a patient approach, um, that's always a good, solid uh, baseline recommendation. Um, I also think it could be worthwhile, again, borrowing from, you know, basketball, um, soccer, lacrosse, those types of uh, court and field sports where um, even more severe knee injuries, uh, such as ACL tears are really common and they've had great success there with plyometric interventions and so mm -hmm. doing a lot of uh you know jumping and landing and bounding type of drills um does seem to be pretty effective in helping athletes learn to control those movements better um and be able to absorb absorb those forces more effectively uh so i think there's potential that maybe those could also be effective in runners um and so that was also something um that was will be part of the next um, part coming out of my dissertation. Um, I don't think we have any definitive answers yet, but again, I think becoming stronger, um, never a bad recommendation. Gotcha. So you think that runners, especially distance runners, need to be strength training? I would say yes. I would agree with that <laughs> statement. <laughs> good, good. That's. Yeah. I'm so glad that that whole idea has changed dramatically over the past, I don't know, 10, 20 years. Cause like that wasn't a thing when I started running and, and plenty of my current clients, uh, who, you know, 10 years ago, like they, they weren't doing that. They weren't lifting. Even now it's like, no, 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 no. Like my, they'll lift upper body, yeah. they'll do some core, but they're like, no, nah, no, nah, I run enough. I run a ton. I don't need to. I don't need to lift with my legs. Like, yeah. On, please, this is gonna help you. It's been a nice reference actually lately. Um, you know, given the popularity of shoes, and not to get too off topic, but this four percent number has mm. really kind of made, had a huge impact, and four percent now means a lot. Um, and when you look at a lot of these studies, looking at heavy strength training or plyometric interventions in runners they get um, anywhere from like two to 8%. So really similar benefits. And so any runner, they're leaving that on the table. And if you look at the effect that, you know, running shoes have had on the current landscape of running, um, to imagine that some some runners are leaving them on the table because they don't want to do some strength training, I think is, um, <laughs> hopefully that's enough to convince them. I, I think so. I mean, I strength train. 
right? Like that's, I understand the benefit of it. Um, and I try to convey that to, you know, to every runner that, that I know whether they're dealing with injuries or not, or whether they have, you know, lofty racing goals or whether they're just, you know, they just like to run like, Hey, this, this will make it better. This will take you to another level. Like it's, and it's not just, um, it's not just performance benefit. It's also injury prevention benefit. Like you're, you're more resilient. So that means you can apply more force because now you can absorb more force. Like this is, this is a good thing. So I think that's awesome. So, um, if you had to tie this all up in a neat bundle, like what, what would your general recommendations be for, for any runner, whether they're just starting out or whether they've been doing it a long time? Um, what, what kind of advice do you have based off kind of what, what you've learned and what you know and what you theorize for, for where things are heading for runners in the future? Yeah. Um, it would always be nice to have more definitive answers. I think as someone who spends <laughs> their life researching this to say, oh, we just need to do more research is... <laughs> um, but I think, you know, starting off with, you know, don't try to chase some specific type of running form. I think that's, you know, an, a really unnecessary stress to put on on running. And I think however you run is probably great for your body structure. Um, and the point at which you might want to consider making changes is um, if you're having problems, specifically injuries that are recurring in the same spot, and then working with a trained person, whether, you know, to your point, a physical therapist or kinesiologist or someone who's understands um, what movement patterns might be related to the injuries you're experiencing. Um, they can definitely help provide you some guidance and take a lot of the guesswork out of that. Um, and as we just, you know, finished up discussing, uh, I think strength training, um, it, it could potentially, especially if you're doing kind of explosive movements that are more specific to running, um, mm -hmm. you know, running is, you know, jumping and landing several times for, you know, thousands of steps. And so getting really good at jumping and landing, I think, um, it, hopefully it might help improve your movement patterns, but certainly it will help improve the integrity of your tissues and make them more, more resilient and robust to injury and help your performance. Um, so I think that is uh, definitely one good takeaway from what we know so far and looking forward to learning more. Awesome. Oh, I, I just thought of one more question. So when it comes to strength training, what do you think, uh, do you think that there's maybe too much emphasis on strength training in the sagittal plane and not enough emphasis on strength training in the frontal or transverse plane? That's a good question. Um, I think one thing that's interesting in trying to understand maybe why some people do have more range of motion in the frontal plane than another, um, they've actually found that a person's strength, at least how strength is typically measured in a clinic, let's say, is really um, has a very poor relation or none at all to their movement patterns during running. And mm -hmm. so I think um, that suggests that maybe just making these muscles stronger isn't going to make you move any better. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's definitely a control component. And so um, not that it's people shouldn't strengthen them. I think especially after injuries, a lot of time there is weakness that may even just result from being inhibited from pain that mm -hmm. might need to be addressed. So not that it shouldn't be strengthened, but I think definitely including some control type exercises, like whether it's a single leg exercise where you, you really have to use your glute medius and control that movement to, um, you know, keep your hips fairly level um, is important and trying to incorporate that into the sagittal plane activities potentially would be mm -hmm. uh, really effective awesome because uh like i have i have my clients uh so there's the strength coach dan john and i'm not sure if he kind of developed this this way of programming but he basically sets it up to where 
you know, just about every session, whether you're training every day or whether you're training, you know, twice a week or three times a week, um, should have a squat pattern, a hip hinge pattern, upper body pushes, upper body pulls in like a weighted carry. So, uh, he trains primarily, uh, track and field throwers, like shot put, discus, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, like that's, they're doing a ton of rotation for, for both the throws. Right. So, um, he, in general, you know, he's like, that's, that's bread and butter. That's what you need to be doing every day. Like don't always train so that it looks exactly like in the weight room, don't train so that it looks like your sport. Like, so he looks at strength and conditioning as more, I think of like a general physical preparation sort of thing. Like just make the body resilient, just be strong and then train your sport. And you know, there's some carryover with runners. I don't think it's, it's as seamless trying to just like, okay, just do some squats and deadlifts and hip hinges and upper body work and weighted carries and do that and then go run. Like, I'm not sure there's as much carryover. Like, I think it's, I think it is more important to focus on, on those movement patterns for sure. But then because running, the end result of running is sagittal plane, but because there is so much, uh, frontal plane and transverse plane wiggle room, let's say, because the body has to use these joints and, and motions, internal rotation of the tibia and hip abduction and adduction and all this stuff. It's using that to, to get you to just go forward. I think it's extremely important to train less in the sagittal plane in the weight room and train way more in the frontal plane. So not just doing a squat, but doing a, a lateral squat or doing a, um, a 90 degree rotation squat doing, you know, like lunging forward for sure, but also lunging in reverse and like, like working as many of those planes of motion as possible. Like, I see that as being way more helpful for all of my runners and for my cyclists, like my triathletes get a ton of benefit from doing non-sagittal plane strength and conditioning because they're already sagittal all the time. Like, so I think that makes runners way more resilient, not just being in the weight room, but being in the weight room, doing working on the planes of motion that aren't quote unquote primary movers. Right because they end up being stabilizers and secondary movers and stuff like that. And I think we didn't really cover this, but my guess is like as a runner fatigues, the amount of motion in the frontal plane and transverse plane probably increases big time because there's less control. Like as, as you fatigue, like things, things happen. And I think, um, yeah, that's like you said, that's why increasing mileage and increasing volume needs to be like appropriate because if you make these huge jumps, you know, you're leaving, you're leaving, you're putting yourself at a much higher risk for, for some serious issues just because your body's not conditioned for that yet. So I don't know. That's kind of my yeah. my understanding of things currently for sure for sure a patient approach and i'm not always the best at this <laughs> it's easier to give someone else this advice than to take it yourself but patience always pays off i hear that yeah i if i don't program out like my running like weeks or months in advance so like here's what i'm going to do if i don't do that and if i'm just like I feel like running today. I'll go, you know, I'll go run this number of miles or this amount of time. Like it's, I end up, obviously it's not exponential, but it it looks way more exponential than it does linear. (laughs) So yeah. Yeah. It's like you said, it's easy, way easier to tell somebody how to do that. So 
that's crazy stuff. But so if people want to read some of your work or they want to reach out to you to ask questions or they want to follow you, um, what are the best ways to do that? Um, yes, I'm probably most active, um, on Twitter. Um, my handle's at running underscore geek. Um, and I like it. Yep. (laughs) And, uh, definitely open. If anyone wants to reach out via email, it's kate.harrison at boatechnology.com. And I'm sure you can include those in, in notes if anyone's Mm -hmm. looking for it. Um, love to hear from them. Awesome. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This has been really awesome. Um, I feel like, you know, I'm I'm slowly but surely getting a better understanding of how to help, you know, myself and how to help all my, you know, runners and triathletes and endurance athletes. And um, I wish it were super simple. And it's just like <laughs> in this 50-minute podcast <laughs> – we I figured think I'd be everything out, of a job out if it was simple. So I'm glad it's complicated. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So, um, any uh, any sneak peeks on on uh, running shoe technology that that you want to share with us? Sneak peeks, um, nothing specific, but it is a rapidly advancing field. So I think any any other running and shoe geeks definitely keep. Keep your eyes out. Um, it's an exciting space right now, for sure. It sure is. Yeah, uh, quite a few running shoe companies have tried to come out with with their like elite racing shoe to to match Nike, and I I love it. I think it's so cool. So yeah. fun stuff. Yes. So awesome, Kate. Thank you again for doing this. It's been it's been a really fun conversation, and I've learned quite a bit um, being able to talk with you. So. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. For sure. Awesome. All right, y'all. Stay tuned for next week's episode and go follow Kate. And if you have any questions for her, go ahead and reach out. All right. See y'all next week.